usually in, in poetry workshops that I've been in, people have not talked about point of view. It's seen as a kind of a fictional thing. Fiction writers study point of view very carefully and talk about the fine graduations between limited third person, full on third person. Early on I was writing a poem and I, I got the idea, which I think is true for many per, pe, poets, uh, first person omniscience, which also could be seen as a male point of view. Unreliable omniscience would be a good one to think about. Um, but I was writing a book suddenly and I was trying to write a book about a community. I didn't know if it was full-on serious or playful or, or what, but the intent was serious to represent a community and several outliers in the community over a period of 50 years. And I found myself not quite knowing what to do with point of view. I moved to third person for most of the book. There are three poems in the point of view of one of the characters that are first person. So I started examining point of view. For one thing, I think first person can be egocentric. It can seem to me that poets are terribly full of ourselves, <laughs> to shift point of view, and that that can be a trap. And that a lot of times I hear people applauding on Facebook as much as they can applaud with one hand. Um, for points of view that are, for people expressing points of view that are actually their own point of view which I would call pushing a button. Um, some of the, the poems that I read at some point had something that fiction has, which is multiplicity, which is a capacity to express various points of view, including ones that you may yourself think reprehensible by characters. And that may even be the captain point of view, the point of view in charge. Uh, the story can be told by the person who commits the murder. Uh, I think fiction runs naturally against stereotype. And poetry, I think, often is aimed in the direction of a stereotype, and it's, it's essential to resist that, you know, the righteousness within oneself not to value that too highly because it is a sleepy proposition for a good reader. So I'm not sure that I agree with everything I'm saying here. I've been mystified by point of view. I, I grew up alone in the country, most of the time alone, and I had three imaginary playmates, Teddy, Ernie, and Diddy. And when I think of them in retrospect, they represent the men around me, the male role models. Uh, one of them drove a road grader. I love that one. Uh, one, earned, one ran a service station. I had a lot of little cars pulling up all the time, building cities. One was a, a mechanic. And in talking to my mother, I had these people cussing a lot, so I'd just be under the porch saying, God damn it, Ernie, get over here. And they all had accents, and, and my mother was trying to always straighten me out and make me a better person. And finally, I think because of her, a fourth friend came in, Michael, and I would sometimes recite things like, Teddy, Ernie, and Diddy smoke, curse, and drink, and they're bad, but Michael doesn't curse drink. He did everything your mother would want the kid to do, you know. I mean, he was just there. Uh, that seemed to be a natural, a natural thing. But later I started thinking, maybe I am Diddy. <laughs> maybe I am one of these characters, you know. And this is, this is sort of a frightening notion of character when you begin attempting to distinguish between characters. You know, you may give them 
say it features, but the point of view is that much of the time your dog is thinking exactly the same thing that you're thinking, not in, not in words, but uh, in that perfect meditative trance of dogs. Uh, so here I go. Point of view and tone are subtextual shaping agencies, prime allowers, but they differ in this regard. Tone comes of emotional recognition, a fidelity of the reluctantly changing individual character of the author to material, and once discovered, it is an energizing music. Point of view, on the other hand, is a frame, a referential contract, not simply a genuflection to sources imagined, experienced, or gathered second or third hand, but a principle by which the reader may lay a claim on a text that, if successful, transcends the authorial presence. Sometimes it requires the channeling of a seance, writing it. Sometimes research and always play. The neuroscientist Gerald Edelman wrote in Wider Than the Sky, Consciousness is a process that is tied to an individual body and brain and to their history. From an observational point of view, the first person experience is not written in transferable currency that is completely negotiable by a third person scientific observer. But it is a reasonable starting point to assume that first-person experience and individual species of a given species that have some things in common may be something that we use. And then he goes on to say, we can't be quite so confident about bats. So I have to assume, I think, at the bottom that the lemon gumdrop is going to taste the same way to the reader that it tastes to me. And so much faith comes of that. This body of imagery and things of individuation, he calls qualia, which is as much of a philosophical idea as a, uh, as a body of imagery, but usually it's imagery. And I, one question to ask yourself, if you have like a information, data, to, to make it cold, and you're trying to transfer that. How does it change when you move it from first person to, to second person to third person, et cetera? It's the same accident. But I write with the notion that many contemporary poets tend not to decide on a point of view, but to work in first person through a default to the habits of the confessional and narrative poets of their liking. In my own case, as a freshman at the University of Alabama reading W.D. Snodgrass' Heart's Needle, a book about his divorce and separation from his daughter, I had come to trust the irreplaceable authenticity of life experience. Here was the poet and here was the man, and soon I had become W.D. Snodgrass Jones, writing fraudulent poems about my own broken marriage and separation from my daughter. It's really true when you think you, this is authentic. That's when you're a fraud, always. But also on a more promising level, writing about life at the moment it was lived. Nearly 50 years later in writing a book about many characters and points of views, I needed more ego and authenticity, more than ego and authenticity. To move forward, I would need to break eggs, cross-examine pronouns, imagine others. They say you can't smell yourself. I did. In overriding the default autobiographical first person, the decision, I think, is what are you doing when you're inserting the pronoun? This is mostly going to be about pronouns, but uh, if you look at this poem, Karen Soley's Tractor, it's one of the first uh, poems about fracking. Here is an alternative for, for everyone. Let the stuff do the work. Keep the pronoun out of it. So I wanted to talk about a couple of poems that I, I, would, I might call it first person light. It's not like Blake's, I see all things past, present, and future. Which I always thought, I'd like to try that one in the workshop. <laughs> yeah. uh, can I get a volunteer 
uh, to read Tractor. More than a story high and twice that long, it looks igneous. The viewer, versatile 2360, possessed of the ecology of some palatious minor island on which options are now standard. Cresting the sections in a corona pater and part heat, it appears risen full-blown from our deeper needs, aspirating its turbo-cooled air articulated and fully compatible. What used to take a week, it does in a day on approximately a half mile to the gallon. It costs 150 grand. We hope to own it outright by 2017. Few things wrought by human hands are more sublime than the Bueller Versatile 2360. Across the road, a crew erects the floodlit derricks of a Texan outfit, whose presumptions are consistently vindicated. The ancient seabed will be fractured to 1,000 feet by pressuring through a pipe literal tons of the fluid, the constituents of which are best left out of this. To tap the sweet gas where it lies, like the side our bread is buttered on, the earth shakes terribly then, dear Houston, Dear parent corporation, with its rebroken dead and freshly killed, the air concussive cardiac irregular. It silences the arguments of every living thing, and our minds in that time are not entirely elsewhere. But I was speaking of Bueller versatile 2360, phase D, and how well recognized it is among the classics. Wagner, Steiger, International Harvester, John Deere, Case Minneapolis Moline, Oliver, White, Alice Chalmers, Massey Ferguson, Ford, Wright, Rome, one can say a manifest fate, forged like a pearl around the grid of centuries. That, in a sense, has always been with us. The diesel smell of a foregone conclusion, in times of doubt, we cast our eyes upon the Bueller Versatile 2360, and are confirmed. And when it breaks down, or thinks itself in gear and won't, for our own good start, it takes a guy out from the city at 60 bucks an hour, plus travel and parts, to fix it. First pronoun, it. Last pronoun, it. Of the poem's 19 pronouns, 14 are impersonal. And of the five personal pronouns, the first person I appears once at the beginning of the last stanza. In a poem that enunciates so much view and so little point, I say that guardedly. <laughs> Would it matter if the we's were they's, if the I were she or you? Uh, perhaps not. Um, the description does what all description and imaginative literature must. It makes a structure for a reader, but also characterizes. By subverting ego to material solely as managed the rare, unpandering poem of witness. The juxtaposition of two utilities, fracking and tending a field, implies metaphor, but readers are hard-pressed to identify one utility as tenor, the other as vehicle. And all of this, the deep point of view, clarifies the status of the director. Now, I think the problem is a problem that is illustrated by many politicians. The information becomes problematical when it's held within any kind of point of view that has an object, and when we're on to the object, and it interferes with the trance of reading. Elizabeth Bishop was very good at this light play of point of view where she doesn't hardly include herself. She does at very important points, and in the waiting room, it's a poem about the self. But this is not a poem about the self, exactly. It, it's shy in a way. If, I, think, I think this is a, a, a thing that holds together just the imagery, just the information, just the data, just the description. So much is done there. But I think if a writer gave me direction, sometimes I would pay so much attention to the kind of person that it's characterizing that I would never get there. Um, it depends on the writer and the discipline. But I think usually in imaginative literature, the function of description is characterization. 
It has to characterize the maker of the sentence. Uh, before moving on to discussion of other persons, I would like to visit one more example of the modest or discreet first-person point of view, and this is uh, by one of my favorite poets, Larry Levis. Uh, could I get a volunteer here? It's called uh, The Oldest Living Thing in L.A. All right. At Wilshire and Santa Monica, I saw an opossum trying to cross the street. It was late, the street was brightly lit, the opossum would take a few steps forward, then back away from the breath of moving traffic. People coming out of the bars would approach as if to help it somehow. It would lift its black lips and show them the reddened gums, the long rows of incisors, teeth that went all the way back beyond the flames of Troy and Carthage, beyond sheep grazing rock-strewn hills, fragments of ruin in the grass at San Vital. It would back away delicately and smoothly, stepping carefully as it always had. It would mangle someone's hand in 20 seconds, mangle it for good. It could sever it completely from the wrist in 40. There was nothing to be done for it. Someone or other probably called the LAPD, who then called animal control, who woke a driver, who then dressed in mailed gloves, the kind of things small knights once wore into battle, who gathered together his pole with a noose on the end, a light steel net to snare it with, someone who hoped the thing would have vanished by the time he got there. Again, I would ask that question, does the pronoun matter? If it said at Wilfer Shara in Santa Monica, she saw an opossum trying to cross the street. I would tend in my own narrow way to identify it as a male opossum because uh, the character seems to indulge a little BS about the, um, about the possum. I've, I, I'm slightly scared of possums, but it could mangle someone's hand in 20 seconds, mangle it for good. That seems kind of like, you know, some women would write that. Well, they snarl at you in a terrible way, though, and it hurts your feelings. <laughs> He's going over to the other side. I mean, you're trying to bring your female self out. I see it. Go ahead. <laughs> this this works for me the one hand, but is such experience owned? That's the question. Are 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 how often do you insert yourself, and when do you insert yourself in a poem as a pronoun? And how do you? How many poets think this is really something because I felt it, as opposed to someone else? Um, there's an authenticity there, but this is a this is a poem where I think he wisely stays out of the poem. Anybody got any observations about this? Because I I do think I look at a lot of poets, my, myself included, as as a self-centered jackass often. Uh, it's you do too. I, not just me, but other men in the room, perhaps not yourself, but. Women too. Yeah, I try and fight it. I try and fight that. I do. I mean, he does. Something I noticed is the only time that we see that I is at the very beginning. So it seems like it just functions to introduce us to the possum. And I think the reason that you don't have a third person there is because then that would implicate that third person into the action of the poem, which that's not what the poem is trying to do. Well, thanks, both of you. Just eliminated the necessity for me to read my next paragraph. <laughs> uh, I <clears throat> I'd said some fancy stuff, but I'll just let that go. <laughs> Uh, 
the framing pronoun is tentative. I'd, I'd said while Soli's poem, like Levis, centers on the tension between organic and technological forces, the framing pronoun is tentative. The tractor in the process of fracking, both held in the shadow of the, mort of the mortgage on the farm. Overriding the autobiographical eye does not mean dismissing personal experience, but auditioning alternative frames for the primary informing consciousness and being willing to change the claim on consciousness in light of which frame might better reveal the felt essence. In approaching such a change, Alice Notley has written, I decided to go against my own sense that certain styles and forms I'd participated in formally might be used up, that autobiography was, that the personal sounding I, as opposed to the fictional I, might be, I take from this not Notley's essential revelation, but the question which inspires not only an examination of one's own poetry, but experiments with transposing points of view in numerous poems in order to approach form in a personal understanding of the physics of point of view. In many, if many texts do not much alter with alternative pronouns to transpose the points of view of the jewel by James Wright, and the first lines of six lines of Richard Hugo's Degrees of Grey in Phillipsburg is to work a disaster. I don't know how many of you know these poems, but let me just read the straight version of, no, so, somebody read the straight version, not change any of the pronouns or reading anything that I put in parentheses. Aaron? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Of the jewel? Yeah, the jewel. There's this cave in the air behind my body that nobody is going to touch. A cloister, a silence, closing around a blossom of fire. When I stand upright in the wind, my bones turn to dark emeralds. No, maybe the Richard Hugo? Yeah. Okay. Degrees of Gray in Phillipsburg. You might come here Sunday on a whim, say your life broke down. The last good kiss you had was years ago. You walk these streets, laid out by the insane, past hotels that didn't last, bars that did the torture try of local drivers to accelerate their lives. I used to love that. And, you know, you don't want to come into a point, the last good kiss you had was years ago, as, as a line that stays with you. You may read it as a young person and think, nah. nah. <laughs> then at some point you think, God, what a depressing <laughs> poem, you know. Um, but somebody read that poem again using her or him and, and instead of I and read, read the cave and let's see what happened, the jewel. Okay. There's this cave in the air behind her body that nobody is going to touch. A cloister, silence, closing around a blossom of fire. When she stands upright in the wind, her bones turn to dark emeralds. <coughs> he might come here Sunday on a whim, say his life broke down, the last good kiss he had was years ago. He walks these streets, laid out by the insane, past hotels that didn't last, bars that did, the torture try of local drivers to accelerate their lives. Okay, you, you changed like the handsome, dramatic narrator of the jewel who was just reciting the poem while standing on a cliff near Aberdeen with one pronoun change, will morph to Rush Limbaugh lampooning Hillary Clinton. <laughs> And why on earth is that fellow in degrees of gray depressing everyone with his pathetic love laughing up setting the Phillipsburg's JCs by sneering at their fine upstanding community? You know, I mean, what, what, what's the deal there? I mean, it's a whole, like, I'll, I would almost, excuse me, want to, with that her, it's different with the him. There's this cave in the air behind his body that nobody's going to touch. A cloister, a silence, closing around a blossom of fire. When he stands upright in the wind, his bones turn to dark emeralds, the asshole. <laughs> you know? I mean, but it, it's no longer sacramental. And, and, and that's a, that's a weird, weird thought. Uh, the question I would ask is, why do alternative pronouns spoil the poem? And do such test misreadings expose weaknesses or intelligence? The eye and the jewel is the specific and limited tenor of one specific metaphor. Aside from the eye, everything else in the poem is a vehicle that applies to the eye 
and the effectiveness of the whole poem seems to me depend on that pronoun. Uh, as for the you in Hugo's poem, it is the fictive you of a person talking to himself. That's often the use of the you. It's kind of a handy but sloppy pronoun. I wish we still had thou. It would be neat, even though I, I don't think I could say it without going into church or something, or becoming a Quaker. Uh, the you is that fictive you, and it asks you, it, it puts it in the hypothetical subjunctive realm, and it somehow protects the narrator against saying something that if he said, especially in first person, would uh, just be lethal. You know, it's like, I ain't had a good kiss in years. I mean, you might get on the jukebox, but I don't know if you could do that. It's a, it's a tricky business. And that you pronoun, I don't know if any of you have used it uh, thinking that you could hide there. <laughs> I once got a skillet dropped on my toe at a, at a wake because of that pronoun. A person came up and said, why the hell did you write about me? And I said, that wasn't you. <laughs> That's a problem. Uh, some kind of, it, it kind of earns the past that we grant the stalker and stings every step you take. Seems a beautiful love song. And then, in degrees of gray, we see that. Not childish self-pity, but appropriate distancing from an authentic crisis. You must change your life, wrote Rilke at the end of the archaic statue of Apollo. If he had written, she must change her life, it would be completely different. Um, it might seem counterintuitive, transposing first-person pronouns to third in poems that are deemed confessional often doesn't make a bit of difference. Um, Lowell's tamed by a mill town we lie on mother's bed, the dying sun and war paint dyes us red, are sometimes I think seals must live as long as the scholar gypsy, retain nearly the exact tone if we transpose the we's to they's and the I's to she's. And I was teaching Sharon Old's magnificent stag's leap at uh, in a classroom and we did exercise at changing those to third person to see what happened. Most of the poems stood up. It was almost immaterial whether it was first person or third person. And uh, I still study why that is. And I think maybe fiction writers have looked at that, people who write fiction all the time so much that they would know. Uh, but um, it, it, it's, it's a good study. In a practical sense, uh, in truth, the sorts of material that the confessional poets used were well-worn in literature, but rarely claimed by the author at that point. As Peter Davison said, Anne Sexton was the first woman to write about the other fellow while still living with her husband. If Flaubert had entered such personal territory in Madame Bovary, Emery Bovary was not the author. In a practical sense, the eye is irreplaceable in dramatic monologues, especially those like Dennis Johnson's The Talkin' Richard Wilson Blues by Richard Clay Wilson, or uh, Frank Bedart's Herbert White, I don't know if you know those texts. They feature unreliable narrators and are thus overheard. Uh, Ken Harris used to say to me, you know, about writing dialogue, he said, you write dialogue not to try to get the way people talk, but to get the quality of being overheard. And I think that's a really effective freedom that you can utilize or use as a writer, you know, to just kind of give yourself a freedom. Put yourself in the booth and imagine that something wonderful has happened to you and you want people in the other booth to overhear it. That's the situation. So when one begins with lines like Johnson's, you might as well take a razor to your pecker as let a woman in your heart which is the first line of the dramatic monologue, uh, are Frank Bedart's, when I hit her on the head, it was good. 
which is sort of, I always want to read in Peter Laurie's voice. And when I hit him in the head, it was good. You know, the, it carries that, that authority. Uh, I have read those two beginning poetry classes who so inured with the kind of handy morality of the poem that shows us how to feel that they have wanted to leave the class, you know, because the Frank Bedart poem is about uh, a psychosexual killer who repeatedly kills little girls. And he does the point of view in a very wise kind of way, he puts a lot of Freudian information in it, but it's a chilling poem if you hadn't read it, as is uh, uh, Dennis Johnson's. Um, it's best to attribute those kinds of feelings to others, but to dodge such points of view in order to facilitate an admirable speaker is imaginative treason. Of all the graves that poets might pitch themselves into, the perfection the projection of a false moral or aesthetic righteousness may be the deepest. Not that mores or aesthetics are irrelevant, but that to press them hard steals discovery from the reader. It's like the reader's territory is so large. Uh, talk a little bit about the second person. Because of the second because the second person pronoun is often used to establish objectivity in a private self-conversation, it is often taken for self-address. Um, Gwendolyn Brooks, the mother, on the other hand, if you have that poem, creates the second person mask with the first line. Abortions will not let you forget. But the attitude is not the subjunctive you might, but the directly declarative will not. Will somebody read this? Uh, okay, okay. The mother. Abortions will not let you forget. You remember the children you got that you did not get. The damp small pulps with a little or with no hair. The singers and workers that never handled the air. You will never neglect or beat them or silence or buy with a sweet. You will never wind up the sucking thumb or scuttle off ghosts that come. You will never leave them controlling your luscious sigh. Return for us. Return for a snack of them with bobbling mother eye. I have heard in the voices of the wind the voices of my dim killed children. I have contracted, I have eased my dim dears at the breasts they could never suck. I have said, sweets, if I send, if I seized your luck and your lives from your unfinished reach, if I stole your births and your names, your straight baby tears and your games, your stilted or lovely loves, your tumults, your marriages, aches, and your deaths, if I poisoned the beginnings of your breaths, believe that even in my deliberateness I was not deliberate. Though why should I whine, whine that the crime was other than mine, since anyhow you were dead, or rather, or instead, you were never made. But that too, I am afraid, is faulty. Oh, what shall I say? How is the truth to be said? You were born, you had body, you died. It is just that you never giggled or planned, planned or cried. Believe me, I loved you all. Believe me, I knew, though faintly, and I loved, I loved you all. Well, you know, like, look at the speaker in this poem, at the pronouns, their density and placement. 47 pronouns in 33 lines. That's dense. Uh, the shifts, the inconsistency in reference. The mother speaking of her aborted children refers to herself as you in the first stanza, switches to first person and second, and in the last two stanzas addresses the aborted children in the same tone and with the same pronoun that she began by addressing herself. Yet there is no confusion. 
the shift passes seamlessly, set up by the distancing enclosure of I have said, and the pronouns might not be changed without damaging the gist. Uh, more crucial distancing occurs with the title, The Mother. The authority of the first person here is not the same that would obtain if the poem were titled Abortions. This is a dramatic monologue, I believe. And though it flirts with the autobiographical, it is not spoken directly to the reader, but overheard from a short distance presented as a fiction. And if it were not, it would be no less likely to have happened. Uh, there is some distancing there. Everybody in this room, there's something that you will not say. And uh, Charlie Baxter has lectured and said, talked about that, and he says it's really important not to say some things. But this is some mechanism, and, and maybe all fiction is, a mechanism for saying something that deeply represents the complexity of an author or a part of the author that is perhaps shameful to claim in a public space. Or it may have to do with I think too highly of myself, it can. But fiction allows this multiplicity that allows one through presenting other points of views to represent a complexity. And this is a complex feeling in this poem. It's a poem that, you know, almost brings tears. It's so intimate. And yet you look at it and a lot of its hatches are closed. You know, there's a lot that it's not saying. To write poetry that aspires to fiction more than to memoir is not exactly novel. The Iliad and the Odyssey were fiction, as was Chaucer's The Canterbury Tale and Shakespeare's plays, and works of fiction, of course, are not all fiction. E.M. Foster said, We all pretend we don't use real people, but one does, actually. I use some of my family. Miss Bartless was my Aunt Emily. They all read the book, but none of them saw it. Uncle Willie turned into Mrs. Failing. <laughs> and that, I think that is the kind of thing that we do. You know, if we're making up characters, maybe we start with a, a base stock of people we know. And as the book goes along, they begin to take incredible changes. Sometimes they change gender. A story begins to accrue and takes its own shape, and we follow that. And the characters, if you get into a book of fiction, everybody knows this, the characters begin to make suggestions. <laughs> and you're driving along on a highway and one of the characters starts talking to you. And you don't like some of the characters. They're not your ideals, you know. They, they take over, they change, um, and you, you permit it, and when the book is over, you miss those characters, so, and at the same time, every character, to a degree, has to use the shape of your mouth when they kiss the refrigerator. <laughs> there, is, there is something very first person about everything. Seamus Heaney said that he had problems with establishing points of view from the get-go when he began to translate Beowulf. And you think, well, Beowulf comes with a point of view, but he said no. Finally, he remembered visiting an old cousin, a sheep farmer who lived back in the hills. The way he saw things and talked, that was the point of view, the voice that he used as the base. The essential question is, where does fiction come from? And the answer should not be clear the imagination of the inner lives of others. According to Hemingway, his first person point of view was formed largely from the experiences and knowledge of my friends and all the people I'd known or met since I could not remember who were not writers. And I think that's something that all of us use. You know, we don't only use the books we read. People say things that I want to use. Sometimes I say, can I use that? Um, it's odd, my sister, if you are a writer and people know that, it's like people begin to hold things from you. <laughs> They're not so free to confess their... My sister's high school boyfriend, who's a giant, came to see a... 
her and her husband, I guess, while they were visiting my folks. Her husband's in his 70s, my sister's 70. This guy comes to the door and says, I want to see, names my sister's husband. He comes out, and the big guy says, you said some shit to me that I don't take from anybody. He said, what, what do you mean? <laughs> and the guy said, you know what you mean. And he just decks him, knocks him out <laughs> right in the lawn. So this happened several years before my sister told me about it because she said, I know you'll write it. I said, how could you possibly think that I would ever share that with anyone? <laughs> but the idea of writing from a completely imaginary character is another possibility. Another great possibility, I think, is the possibility that Michael Ondaatje sometimes takes uh, in Coming Through Slaughter, a book where he starts with a historical character uh, uh, Buddy Bolden, who many people think begins jazz. And uh, in this book, The Collected uh, Works of Billy the Kid, which is a book that I would like for you to read, not because I think of it as great lyrical poetry, but because it shows a lot of nerve. It shows an image of language. It doesn't get into poetry much. It shows a freedom with point of view. Uh, and he starts the poem... The Collected Works of Billy the Kid and the Voice of Billy, like this, is, uh, is somebody here ready to be a, a cowboy? <laughs> you are? I already read it. Someone else is yeah. saying it. Yeah. <laughs> Who? Simeon. You're the dude. <laughs> like a cowboy to me. self-defense find a very safe rock. Oh my one, God. one man who bit me during a robbery. <laughs> That's not funny, Simeon. These are dead people. Show some respect for the dead. No, go ahead. Go on. Uh, the author's identity is on hold, and the cowboy he channels plies a Western folk vernacular ever so slightly nuanced with literary registers, but not many poets will take this kind of faith in, well, you just start talking, you just better make sure that people believe what you're saying, you know? I mean, it, there's no BS in this, there's no, nothing that's ornately contrived to sound literary, except for maybe blood and necklace on me all my life, which I cannot wear that to the pool room quite. <laughs> but pretty much everything else is in that, uh, in that point of view that's absolutely, you know, pretty much conceivable for Billy. And would you go on and read the, the other portion, too? Okay. After shooting Gregory, this is what happened. I shoot him well and careful, <laughs> made it explode under his heart so it wouldn't last very, so it wouldn't last long. I was about to walk away when his chicken paddled out to me. <laughs> and as he was falling, hops on his neck, digs the brake, digs the brake into his Beak, throat. it's my, my fault. I should have said beak. Digs the beak into his throat, straightens legs, heaves a red and blue vein out. Meanwhile, he fell, and the chicken walked away, still tugging at the vein. <laughs> Till it was 12 yards long, as if it held that body like a kite. Gregory's last words being, 
Get away from me, you stupid chicken. <laughs> I mean, what is, what is wrong with us that we all just die laughing at things like this? I mean, you know, like my aunt, uh, my great aunt. Well, I'm not going to tell that story, but it was, a, it was a terrible story of her death. And every time I told it to my former wife, she broke into hysterical laughter. And I realize that it is funny to back over an old woman and drag her several miles and then ask a mechanic to check the muffler and have him go up under it with a creeper and run into this dead body. I mean, that is pretty damn funny, you know. But there is something, you know, like in this point of view that I don't think many poets would do. And you can get so fussy as a poet that you will think, you know, I'm not going to do that. Sounds too, you know, ain't no poetry in there. I got to put a step letter in my poem. Got to get a step letter in here or something. These Billy lines sway in a hybrid that combines words and prose, often poetic, with words and lines, often prosaic. That's a good move. It is. And I might offer them in a course on fictive poetry as part of the discussion of character and consciousness alongside passages from, say, Robert Penn Warren's Audubon A Vision, um, Ellen Brian Voigt's Curie, and Adrian Matika's The Big Smoke, which is about Jack Johnson, the boxer, to cite examples from three generations of poets who take as their sources historical characters and fictionalize them. Is the authenticity of the experience important in such works? Yes and no. The reader looks for personal revelation, but through a slightly less intimate identification with the text, as if these voices were shielded, insulated, and dragged, third-person bodies and first-person clothes. The association grows more through information, less through personality. The points of view heard in the next booth at the diner which evoke no seeming moral design but an openness and wonder that complicates as the material threatens at times to become autobiographical. I think like right at this point in time, context is such a problem because the context vary from one year to another. I mean, for all of these years, it was the Greeks and Jesus and so forth in this culture. But there's not a, a consistent frame of reference. So I think if you choose to fictionalize around a known historical person, that it solves the reference problem to some degree. My friend Morris Manning, who's a, you know, a great poet, I think, an interesting guy, is writing a, a book now from the point of view of Lincoln. Uh, and Doing that gives you, getting into another character gives you the license to say a lot of things, not just maybe nasty things, uh, but wise things. That being too wise in first person sometimes will get you in trouble. But if you turn into, you know, Billy the Kid, you can say anything because <laughs> you're armed. Ann Carson, the great Ann Carson, has consistently blended points of views that might be characterized as fictional with seemingly autobiographical situations. The readerly attention she compels is less attached to the use of first-person narration than to a distancing and objectivity that sacrifices lyrical density to making a quick and direct impact with each sentence. Her greatest poem, this is, I think this, her greatest poem, The Glass Essay, is first person but constructed with the sense of being overheard. It is a fiction presented as an essay. In a similar way, The Beauty of the Husband, which she subtitles a fictional essay in 20 tangos, presents a marriage so plausible that a reader infers an actual romance wagon its negotiations and tangles behind the curtains of the years between the experiential source and the writing. 
the point of view too might be cast as misdirection as the first person narrator's view is less a subjective rendering than a wry process of examining experience that suggests a methodical if not nearly autistic objectification. I read one point of view from an autistic point of view. It's a novel by some English writer. I, I cannot remember the name, but it's a group. Yes. What a book, you know, to get that far into that character. And uh, something about Anne that makes me think she's on the spectrum. Um, the point of view might be cast as a misdirection, as the first person, et cetera. Uh, in the interest of this particular lecture, I would like to focus on the 16th tango in which the narration shifts from per first person to third person. And this is from The Beauty of the Husband. The tale is reticent event, it's called. Could I get a volunteer, preferably female, or an extremely effeminate man will work also. <coughs> I could do it. As a reticent event. The husband had a friend named Ray, whom he loved greatly. Ray was troubled in mind, but valiant. When Ray came to the house, the wife stayed in the room. He's out of control, she said. Ray sat in the kitchen with the husband and a bottle of wine, talked about his mysteries. Tricking every night is a sign of despair, was a comment of the wife's next day at breakfast. Ray had just left. The husband spread his hands as if to say, gently now. Ray had a voice like a botched tango. Women as well as boys liked to listen to it. And because Ray was a person who soon enough got to know everybody, Ray soon enough got to know Dolores Merkett. He had some ideas about what was going on there that he kept to himself. To the husband, he said, double your fun. <laughs> Ray liked idioms. One night late, he came to the house looking for the husband. The wife was in her study in the attic with all the lights on down below. Got your house lit up like a Roman nougat. Ray calls up from the stairs. She looks up from her work, deep in the pleasure of it as he can see. Something about her blinds him. He's out, she says. Together, they watch stray drops of this fact condense on the air between them. Some call it love, but those two, soul, those two whose souls knit at that moment as the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David did not love one another. How much simpler that would have been. Before I try to do anything objective with point of view, the thing she does with representing experience in this last part is so magnificent. When she gets good, it's like, it's not necessarily, it doesn't seem to be specifically because of the words, but in, in that moment of saying, got your house lit up like a Roman nugget. It's like she shifts voices. It's like there's a movie playing almost and and, the, and it's going independently of the voices. But that thing, he's out, she says. Together they watch stray drops of this fact condense on the air between them. It's something like, is that a pistol in your pocket? Are you glad to see me? But it has that kind of <laughs> objective wit that's kind of like being flirted, at by, flirted with by a Martian author, which uh, Louise Gluck is also very good at. But why did she shift to third person? And what can happen in third person that... Do you care less about the third person than the first person? I'm trying to think about the way I really think about Why override the first person narration? Secondary question, how without violating the contract with the reader Immediate answer, the first person transmitter needed to vanish into a more passive third person receiver for the sake of the story. Secondary answer, she had foreshadowing. She had foreshadowed this shift by objectifying herself in earlier sections of, of, of this book. Um, often marking I down to wife. The way self-reference is handled in the book if you objectify it. 
It's really weird. I don't know. How, how do you feel about these people? Like if you're playing softball and some guy hits a, you know, pop up to the third baseman and says, God damn it, Glenn. You know, how do you feel about people who call themselves by their name? You know what I mean? And they say, Rodney, come on now. I never, I never did that. Did all of you have like a third person play voice when you were a kid? Like, he's dropping back. He's dropping back. They have him. No, he's away. You know, it's like you're just going, you know, all the time you're playing, you're, you put yourself in third person and you become greater than you are, far greater. suddenly called to mind a biblical analogy while the droplets of possibility are condensing, it's harder to credit a character like that. But this, because she's in that moment, but the voice of judgment implicit here, the third person allows you to get there without, with a, in a way that the first wouldn't. That is, that is beautiful and true, I think. Yeah. You know? There is some, some time that goes into the third person and distance, you know. It's, 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 it's very odd. Very same thing, you say he and you say I or she and I and the whole situation changes. Um, finally, this shift has to do with the deference to the reader who is promoted and left away the understated and ambiguous sexual eventfulness. You know, it, it's really important to get out of the way of the reader. There's something in me that wants to get intimate with the reader and kind of huggy, feely with... It's disgusting. I, I, I know that I like to be cold like she is. If the ultimate lyrical poetry obtained in the hermetical poetry of Mallarmé and Montali, and I mean the poem in which all the parts relate to each other but not to the external world, Carson renounces that kind of test tube lyricism in favor of a more social and outward perspective. Can it kind of read like gossip? Hmm? Can it kind of read like gossip? Oh, yeah. I mean, because I think that's the attractive part of it. If someone, if it's in the first person, you kind of get repulsed. You're like, why am I talking to this person? Gossip is all that way, but especially... Yeah. I mean, I like to gossip as much as anybody, but I really like to overhear gossip. You know, just kind of eavesdrop. I think every fiction writer is an eavesdropper, and maybe a voyeur as well. I, I don't know. But you're right. Some, some, I had a friend who was a you know, really fancy professor of communication, which meant he really did all this theory all the time. But he, he just wrote something, and he... he, he he reduced all discourse to gossip and bullshit. <laughs> and it pretty much works. Um, Rodney, I have one question. Uh, tell me this wasn't a typo, because I teased and teased about the, the variations in knit with the K and without That was a typo. Oh, I was... I was hoping... Uh, when I read it, I thought, that might have worked. I think some of the most fortunate things I've ever written have been typos. You always, <laughs> you could give that to the Lord. I finally want to talk briefly about, um, even for a solipsis, uh, multiplicity of character is a desired condition. For we are each of us a number of views, long and short, reserved and hot. Yesterday in his diary he was hot. Looking back on what he wrote, he is far cooler today. He might, of course, change what he wrote, revise, or he might realize that some things he wrote about the fat boy, for instance, might work in third person. This is the light by which Dante let Virgil tag along, by which Don Quixote was joined by Sancho Panza, and in which Berriman constructed, John Berriman constructed his three-pronged point of view in the dream songs. Uh, Berman, though he insisted, I am not writing an autobiography in verse, was producing different versions of the same fellow in the third person Henry, the first person author, and the often second person color commentator Mr. Bones, 
to suggest a unitary consciousness that was composed primarily of shifts and gnawing questions of perspective. I don't know how many of you have read this poem. Um, there's a contemporary book called uh, Olio by Tahim Bajess, and he takes on this, uh, the thing that Berriman does in quite a big way. Uh, Jess's book won uh, the Pulitzer last year. It's a big book of poetry that's, uh, that's very, you know, very interesting. Um, at any rate, he disapproves because Berriman takes on a minstrel act where he has one character in, in black speak. And then at other times he's archaic. It's a, the Dream Song is a very interesting book. Would somebody like to read Dream Song number 13? Henry was not a coward, much. He never deserted anything. Instead, he stuck, when things like pity were thinning. So maybe Henry was a human being. Let's investigate that. We did. Okay. He is a human American man. That's true. My lass is breaking. My brass is aching. Come and diminish me and map my way. God's Henry's enemy. We're in business. Why? What business must be clear? A cornering. I couldn't feel more like that, more like it, Mr. Bones. As I look on the saffron sky, you strike me so ornery. <laughs> strike me as ornery, sorry. That works just as well as it. <laughs> Behrman's caricature of self-consciousness in the dream songs, his trinity of points of view, is perhaps our most phenomenal example of overriding the default first-person autobiographical point of view. I ran across the first volume, 77 Dream Songs, not as a result of a class assignment, but in a random library search. I think I had not read even a hundred books of poetry, and I was not certain that this was one, or how it might help me in my first poetry writing workshop, but I could not lay it down, or later, reduce the three components of its selfhood to any convenient redundancy loop of Freudian associations, only say, to say now that it is a record of a lonely eye who creates second and third person selves for company. And I think that's part of what's going on in it. Uh, I really didn't know what to do with Behrman, and, and, and I think at that point, because of my teaching, and I was taught in a, you know, a very, uh, nice community uh, where, you know, I was given books like Pilgrim's Progress when I really needed to be reading trashy novels, probably. <laughs> uh, but I wasn't ready for the chaos, for the, for the work that ended un in uncertainty, or for really the construction of a fictional, uh, by fictional I mean that you're imagining, that you're playing, that you're cartooning, that uh, you are really thinking about other people to a large degree. Um, it took me a long time to get to where I became interested in books that confused me a lot. Now I realize that they merely reflect my own vision and are probably an issue of vanity. <laughs> But I, I hope that you will, you know, think about point of view if you're a poet, because there are so many advantages to being able to work in something other than first person. Thank you. Any questions? Are, are there any questions or, or comments? I know you're wanting to get out of here. So... Okay. The one about the serial killer is uh, Frank uh, Frank Bedart, and it is Herbert White. And let me, before I leave, leave you some recommendations, just a few, because I mentioned several books. That's Herbert White. It's from his book Golden State. Frank Bedart writes in other points of view dramatic monologues a lot, and he's one of these poets who just cuts to the subtext. You know, I mean, again and again, cuts to the subtext. 
Here's some readings on point of view that I like. If you're a poet, a book that I think is essential is my friend C.D. Wright, who died last year. Her book, One Big Self, Prisoners of Louisiana, she takes, she goes into a prison and interviews all of these people in a joint project with a photographer. And then she's left to think, what do I do with this? And she comes up with a polyphonic text from mul with multiple quotations of convicts. And it's established on a first-person platform, but she doesn't really, there's not really a boss. It's like the language is moving. And that's one of the ideas, I think, that's very interesting to me about point of view. There's a woman named Svetlana Alexievich, who won the Nobel Prize about uh, two or three years ago. Uh, she's got a book, Voices for, from Chernobyl, The Oral History. That's a polyphonic book in which she tells the story of Chernobyl strictly through the voices of others, strictly. It's like, there is no boss. I think that's an interesting point of view because it frees me from embarrassment. I, say, I can say, no, I didn't think that, not me. I'm just transmitting the ideas of others. Um, the other things that three fictional poets, poems that interest me is Herbert White, uh, Dennis Johnson's The Talking Richard Wilson Blues by Richard Wilson. It's a poem from the point of view of a man <clears throat> in prison for killing a, a, a black man in a racial murder. Um, it's all his voice. And of course, Anne Carson's The Glass Essay. I think what she does in that book is just, you know, remarkable. A lot of people are working with interesting points of view. There are a lot of people working in fiction and poetry between the two, between nonfiction and poetry, prose. It's a period where people are looking at lots of freedom, which I love. Thank you.